everyone has the aptitude to do it or just the inherent nature of it because an interrogation is just communication. The way I like to think of it is information is a currency and communication is the method to gain that currency. Gain or lose it really and truly when you think about it. We've all done it from the time we were little, you know, in grade school, interacting with somebody all the way up. The only difference is when you become an interrogator, the stakes get a little bit higher and the training gets a little bit more intense. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. As humans, we communicate thousands of times a day, but have you ever wondered if your communication is effective or how you can engage in difficult conversations without getting rattled? Well, today you're in for a treat because you'll hear from former Army interrogator Roman Roberts about how to engage in safe and effective communication. He also discusses talking planning, body language, and negotiation. Finally, Roman provides you with simple strategies that you can use to engage in high-level communication. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you reverse-engineer high-performance, to identify limiting factors and develop strategies and tactics to eliminate them, and to be your best without burning out. But now... It's time to lean in and learn for the best. Well, Roman, I'm really excited to have you on with us today. I'm pumped, man. I'm excited. I think folks are going to be very intrigued by the conversation that we get into. And I just want to start with, how did you get into the Army? And then how did you end up becoming an interrogator? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. that That's normally where everyone starts, right? Because it's such a crazy profession in, in everyone's eyes. But really and truly, I just, I, I said, you know what, I want to get out of the small town that I was in. I grew up in foster care. Some of the homes I were in were less than ideal. And I wanted to get out. So I knew I wanted to join the military. I wanted to join a community and, and build that kind of family. So I went to the military. Uh, the army was the first door in the recruiting office. So that's how oh, I picked the army. No and, way. Uh, yeah, yeah, no way. Um, and then I jumped uh, in there and said, hey, you know, I want to do something that's really cool. That lets me see the world that gets me out of here. They said, okay, well, you know, so I grew up in a small town in Texas, uh, near, near Dallas. What was it called? Fairfield. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm from Dallas area. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So super, super small. Right. So for most people I say, you know, near Waco or near Dallas, cause that's the only way they're going to (laughs) register. And yeah. So I was like, I'm getting out and they were like, yeah, sure. And we went, we took the test. It turned out that I scored pretty high on it. And they said, hey, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities. There's this one called Human Intelligence Collector, and we'll give you $10,000 if you take that one. So at 18 years old, $10,000 sounded like a lot of money. <laughs> I <Yeah>. was like, <laughs> done. And um, so that that's just basically literally the biggest case of happenstance, you know, God intervention, uh, just no, no control or desire on my own. But Turns out I had a really high aptitude for it coming from foster care and things like that. Conversation had always been something that I'd been a part of, but I'd also kind of weaved myself to kind of be able to stretch the truth, lie, be the person I needed to be around the groups that I was in. So, Mm. you know, so I wouldn't get abused. So I wouldn't, so a good family would not give me up in my opinion, right? So I was Mm. trying to do all those things to be a chameleon. And uh, it actually turned out to be pretty useful when you're sitting across from people trying to get information out of them. Interesting. So you learned some of these natural communication techniques as a survival mechanism almost. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, I tell everyone, especially when I'm having these conversations about interrogation, everyone has the aptitude to do it or just the inherent nature of it because an interrogation is just communication, right? So anytime you're talking to somebody you're, the way I like to think of it is information is a currency and communication is the method to gain that currency, gain or lose it really and truly when you think about it. And so we've all done it from the time we were little, you know, in grade school, interacting with somebody all the way up. The only difference is when you become an interrogator, the stakes get a little bit higher and the training gets a little bit more intense, right? 
problem. So it's, it's really not this just phenomenal new thing. I, I like to tell people one of the best sources I had, I just fed him cheeseburgers and listened to him talk. <laughs> you, you found the weakness. There you go, man. I think everybody's weakness might be a cheeseburger. Oh, well, I mean, mine personally, you give me an in and out double double, I might tell you anything you want to know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you're able to keep your clearance. Um, <laughs> so in a previous conversation, you said that interrogation is communication. Could you break that down for me a little bit more? Yeah. So communication is essentially just like I said, that currency exchange, right? So perfect example is this podcast here. You know, you're having me on to try to bring value to your listeners. Your mm-hmm. listeners are listening to gain value, right? So, so you're looking for people who can do that. And you're trying to elicit from the conversation with me, what will bring the most value to the high performers you talk to or the everyday people who are trying to be high performers, right? So when you think about it in those terms, everything you do almost becomes transactional. Mm. And when it becomes transactional, there's logic, there's planning behind it. Because if you really think about it, you know, your budget, you sit down at the beginning of the month and you plan out your budget. You think about what did you spend too much on? What did you spend too little on? Where could you use more money? All these different things, you think about them. And for some reason, and I think it's because communication is so natural, like everyone talks, right? right? And because that happens, people don't really take the time to dive into it and really think about it and really say, am I having effective communication? Because we just go, I'm talking to somebody, they're listening, they're liking the buttons on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, that means that my communication is effective. When really and truly, that may not be the case. The person may like it because they saw a flashy image. They may just like it because they like you. I saw something today, actually on Instagram, where somebody was talking about, how do you know you're really engaging a group? And it, he, said, he, he was talking about like likes and follows are vanity metrics. It doesn't mean that people are actually engaged. Just because I'm listening to you, my head could be a million miles away. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And I think that's the biggest part, right? Is when you're planning a conversation, communication, you're planning to have that person engage. Because if you think of communication as transactional and information as currency, anytime you're talking to somebody, if they're not listening and they're not absorbing it, you're wasting your time and money and your energy, which nobody wants to do. So really and truly, that that key aspect of communication doesn't even involve talking. It doesn't involve looking for the blinks when somebody's lying or the hand techniques. It involves, did you actually go into that conversation with a plan? Do you know what you're trying to do in that conversation? So how do you plan? I, 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 it's so funny. I'm taking notes and you, I just wrote down planned communication and you just, are you, are you in my computer? Um, <laughs> no. This is how planning communication goes. Yeah. So let's talk about what you did to plan this conversation before we talked or yeah. just, or just maybe whatever. Like how do you think through an entire conversation before it happens to get you to your end destination? Yeah, of course. So we'll start with yours because obviously the freshest and I hope yeah. the listeners can kind of pull from it. Right. So uh, your podcast is geared towards high performers. You've had a lot of high performers on there. You have, you're trying to help the everyday person be a high performer. Yes. So when viewing through that lens, the conversation that you're going to have with me is not going to really key on to what my background was, what I did, right? Your focus is going to be how do I perform communication at a high level? Right. Because you want to give that incremental piece of advice. So if I'm thinking through it, I'm going to go, okay, we're going to have a quick little moment where we do intros, right? So offline, we had a little bit of a conversation talking about Amazon Prime Day, talking about the things you have going on, things like that, right? Then we jump into this actual conversation and Obviously, the logical choice would be, hey, what made you join the army, right? Because that's going to key as to whether there was a predetermination that communication and interrogation was something that I was good at, or was it a learned skill, right? And the truth of the matter is, it's actually a little bit of both, right? So once we get to that point, then it goes to, obviously, you're going to want to dissect what an interrogation is, what that communication looks like. So you're going to want to say, hey, you know, what's the first step? At some point, we're probably going to talk about the different keys because a big topic is nonverbal, right? Then at another point, we'll probably talk about verbal communication because the way we speak, how eloquently we speak, how we enunciate, things like that, those are all impacting to communication, right? And you're going to want to tie all of that into your listeners by saying, okay, how does this affect the stay-at-home mom, right? How does this affect the CEO of a company? How does this affect the nonprofit 
business owner, right? How does this affect the team member as well as the team leader, right? Because communication is different at all those levels, but the same fundamental principles still align, right? The same way as I said, we all know how to communicate. We just don't all know how to communicate effectively. So when you think about it in that terms, I've kind of already pulled the key topics that I think you're going to go to. And you may throw me some curveballs, and I love those. But at the same time, if I have a gist for where the conversation can go. <laughs> You've read me like a book, man. I'm, I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> I'm looking at my questions and I'm like, dude, this guy's already. Well, good. That, that makes it so much easier because you're not going to be caught off guard. I'm, I'm trying to think if I can pull one out here later. But this is great because I don't think, I don't think most people really think through what's about to happen. Even when they go into interviews, I mean, I've interviewed people that are just so unprepared for like the basic questions. What are your strengths and weaknesses? And they sit there and they're like, uh, you know, and I think that's a personally, I think it's a dumb question. Yeah. But it's a, it's a softball. Mm-hmm. Super and, interesting. Go ahead. And I think you raise a great point there, right? Because everyone thinks that conversation has to be a thousand all the time. You always have to be pushing towards that goal. And yes, you do but it doesn't mean that you have to be intense about it, right? So it's easier to ramp a conversation up than to ramp it down. So start with softball questions, right? Throw it at a realistic way that people can get comfortable and grow because rapport is a huge part of that, right? The comfort level of the individual you're talking to is key. So yeah, softball questions are great. Like everyone thinks they have to, like, I have to constantly be driving because we hear it all the time. Always be closing, always be the, you know, like that's, that's just the mantra now. And because yeah. attention spans are so short and everything like that. But if you look at some of the great communicators, you know, like, let's just take Gary Vee, for example, his communication, while it's strong and powerful, is very much so built up. He doesn't start by saying fuck every other word. Right. Like he he ramps up to that when he gets to a passionate point and those words give him an emphasis for that point. And people really start to key in on it. I used to be repulsed by the guy. Yeah. Just because I can't stand the just constant swearing. I've come to appreciate, I'm sorry, I don't want to get on this Gary Vee train, but I come to appreciate him a little bit more because his message is very positive. I just think he's losing a demographic that could really rally around what he's saying because he is, it is crass and I don't personally think it's necessary, but I think he's using that to connect with a certain demographic himself. So it may be strategic on his standpoint. Yep. And again, that's part of planning, right? And yep. for me, um, he's just a great communicator, right? The energy, the body signals, the body language, the words, how he enunciates. He's thoughtful. He's, he's thoughtful. You can tell he plans a conversation before you. And you can tell he's thought about where the person is going when they ask him questions. Like, I, I don't know what his schedule looks like, but I guarantee you, like, he might be, he probably sets some time before a, a speech to think of what Q&A might look like. It's very similar to what I did for this podcast here. Very similar to what people who are really prepared and thinking about a conversation think about. You don't just think about what you're going to say. You think about what the other person is going to say. So in keeping with this idea of planning a conversation, once you plan it, you actually get to the conversation and there has to be some rapport building before somebody's going to even consider your point of view or just take a walk with you. How do you build rapport? So three things on that point before Uh that. First of all, rapport is positive and negative. Everyone thinks rapport has to be one or the other. It can be both and it can ebb and flow inside of a conversation. Two, everyone has a plan until the first bullet flies, right? Like uh-huh. we've heard that quote. The same is true for a conversation. You can map it out perfectly, but there's always an unknown and you don't always know those unknowns. So when they happen, that's where kind of the planning comes into play, right? You know where your ultimate goal is so you can kind of get back to that. Rapport just gives you a place, right? It gives you a placeholder to come back to when you're getting lost, when the conversation is veering off topic. And so when you think of it as an anchor, that's what helps the most, right? And so obviously let's take a boat anchor, right? If we don't lay it all the way down, the boat is not going to stay in place, right? So the same thing with the conversation, when you're building that rapport, it has to be real and authentic. You know, I think back to our first conversation when you and me first talked, like I didn't waste time because I knew from the kind of person you were, 
you're not going to want a lot of fluff, right? You're going to want to know what my <laughs> credentials are, why yeah. I should be a good candidate to talk to, what value I can bring to you and the listeners, because just listening to the way you, you do your podcast, reading your background, you're not the kind of person who wants to, to really dive into that deep connection until you know this is going to be a value. And that's yeah, you're negative. exactly right. I was also trying to figure out if you were fake. <laughs> and I called, I mean, I'm serious because the last thing you want, people claim to be a lot of things. And I started looking through your, you know, your, your LinkedIn profile and then I reached out to some different folks and you're exactly right. Like that is, you nailed me. But <laughs> once I do get to know somebody in, in a situation like this, I love deep, the deeper, the better. But yeah, once again, you got it right. Keep going. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, right? So you have to build that anchor and that anchor. So it, again, it varies based on the person. If you're having a conversation with somebody who wants to build more of a deep emotional connection, then you're really going to have to key in on those pieces and you're going to have to really listen when they say it, because those are also the things rapport is where you're gathering your ammo for later in the conversation when you're trying to sell right? So perfect example, if you're trying to convince somebody to buy a meeting software, right? And in the rapport phase, you find out that they're a huge Cowboys fan, right? And so you can say, hey, like, this is the Dak Prescott of programs. Or you can say, hey, this is how you go fourth quarter down by a touchdown. This is how you get that game winning score, right? And it's, it's little things like that. And they sound so cheesy and over the top, but really and truly what it shows is that you listen and all anybody wants is to have someone listen to them and be heard when they have a conversation. And that inherent desire inside of all humans makes it to where if you just take the time and rapport to let somebody tell you a little bit about themselves and you tell a little bit about yourself, it creates this bridge, like you're building the bridge for the whole conversation and you can go back and forth. And I know I'm kind of jumping analogies here, but that's really what it is. It's a little bit of a strong, stable base with a little bit of an area where you can go back and forth because good rapport is not me running the conversation. Good rapport is me saying, Hey, how are you today? How's your family? How's this? And then letting them actually answer and relating that back, right? Kind of how you were talking about Amazon and the jacket you were looking to buy, right? Like, hey, yeah, for that's all cool. the listeners we're- out there, it's Amazon like Prime Day, and my wife just sent me some crazy sequin jacket as a joke. So, anyways, keep going. That yeah. was our rapport building. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really and truly, when you think about it like that, like I can relate and say, hey, yeah, you know, I was on Amazon trying to look for a good lighting setup because I got one window in my office, and it gives us a place to kind of connect. And then, yeah. who knows, the conversation goes down. You know, Amazon is capitalist, or Amazon is this, or whatever, right? <laughs> but it creates an avenue that gives you something in a non-confrontational way. Because once you get into the actual conversation, you may have moments where you're having to push to sell to that person or where you're having to really pull something out of them that you need. And if you don't have a good base to turn to, the conversation is going to fall flat because what are you going to do? You're going to link back and go, okay, so yeah, you're happy. You know what I mean? Like you got to have a real connector. And that was one of the biggest things when I was training interrogators is they would think that rapport building was a time frame because in training, there was a little bit of a time-based training because you can't do everything when you're teaching foundations and you can't do it to the long scale all the time. So they would say, you know, 30 minutes for rapport building or whatever arbitrary time number. And so then people would start associating with that with, That's all I need. I need to spend 30 minutes and then I have rapport. That's not true. Good rapport, you can build a base in five minutes or an hour or even longer. It depends. And great rapport, you're going to build a base, move into your conversation, and you're going to link it back the way I brought Amazon back into our conversation now, right? Showing that I listened to what you said at the beginning. As long as you're constantly ebbing and flowing through those states, rapport is great. Focus on building that initial anchor and then come back to it when you need it. Too often people want to say communication is broken into stages and I am in stage A and stage B and not realizing that it's a fluid back and forth motion. Let me ask you something. As somebody that really, you know, you're a human, you're a human, essentially. Listening is a skill. It's easy to drift in your own mind 
mm-hmm. you're talking to somebody, like, you know, you kind of start chasing that squirrel or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do you stay dialed in? Like, do you have any techniques that you use to make sure that you're listening and you're engaged in the conversation? So two pieces, one, that pre-planning, right? Like I already think about where the conversation is going to go and I've already hyped myself up to be interested because when you're excited for something, man, that's it. Like you're, you're, you're locked in, right? Like, and, and so you build that little excitement and that passion to have the conversation. And when you have that, nothing's going to veer you off course because you want to. Now, when you're in the conversation and you get a little distracted and you feel those things, those little tips coming up, some people like to take notes and say, hey, like, here's my little thing, right? Kind of like what you're doing. Hey, this is a good point. I need to come back to it. Hey, this is something I need to think on. This is something I need to dive more into. That's one way to do it. Another way is to, for me, I like to just kind of think about it and give it that kind of momentary thought and say, okay, at a certain point, I do want to go back and talk about body language, right? Like, and acknowledge that. And then as I'm having my conversation, I'm thinking about how to flow it to that and get it there. So how can I logically move this person to stay on the topic that they're in, but segue us into body language in a, in a seamless transition that doesn't detract from the normal conversation? Yes. I love it, man. You know, when I'm doing these podcasts, I'm trying to do a lot of things at one time. (laughs) I'm trying to listen, like intently listen to what you're saying. I'm trying to think of the next question. And then selfishly, I'm taking notes Mm -hmm. because I'm learning a ton. Right. But life is made of, life is just like one communication after another communication. And if we're not listening, people know. And and personally, I don't want to be selfish. And so this is just something that I've, I, it's, it's in my mind and I hope it's in other people's minds. It's like actually valuing the person in front of you. Cause to me, that shows that you value them when you listen to them. And I think that, that, that transcends all types of relationships, yeah. especially if you want to stay married for very long. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And that's, that ties right into not, not un, unintentionally into body language, right? Mm. Because that's one of the key ways you can show somebody you're listening is by the way that you're involved in their conversation. So what do you you think about my finger over my mouth right now? You know, honestly, it's, it's not a big deal. It's a thinking thing. Like a lot of people have it. And so the thing you have to understand too, is I size up people by their ticks and I know what my ticks are. Right. So from the time that we first talked, you, you put your hand over your lip, the very first conversation we had. So what are my ticks? What are you picking up on? I love this. I love this. (laughs) So that one's a big one. Yeah. As you, when you're actually really, really into the conversation, you get a huge smile, huh. just huge. <laughs> and the other piece is your hands are constantly down. Mm-hmm. And for me, usually that tells me like, oh, this person is like really locked into what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Because when your hands are moving a lot, it means you're either really passionate or really nervous, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're th- when you're like locked in and in a firm position, that means you're trying to embrace everything coming to you, right? Think of it like a solid stance and a football player running towards you. Yeah. You've got a solid stance so that you can absorb everything that's coming in. Because my arms are crossed, and most people you can't see that, but conventional wisdom would say, "Oh, that means they're turned off." I've never seen it that way. Sometimes it's just a comfortable position to be mm-hmm. in. Yeah, and that's the thing too, right? Like. Television has done a bad job portraying the interrogator yeah. and shows like lie to me and things like that, where these micro expressions and crossed arms. So now they've become the universal norm, right? If your arms are crossed, you're angry. Well, again, solid stance, good base, right? Like it's, it's the collective movements, not the individual movements, right? Uh-huh. So while one thing could be a micro expression showing something, the average person is not going to catch that. The average trained interrogator is not going to catch that, right? Like you're, you're talking about such a unique, small, instant millisecond type thing. But the norm where I can see, okay, your posture is good, your posture is strong, you're leaning into the conversation, that tells me you're absorbing it. When you get ready to speak, you're kind of getting a, like a little bit more loose stance, which uh-huh. tells me that you're starting to push out, right? So you you want to get that information out and make sure that, hey, is this the right perspective? As you're and I'm sure this, this crosses uh, language barriers. All language barriers. Yeah, like uh-huh. body language is universal, right? Uh-huh. Like, now there's there's some little nuances depending on culture, but right. for the majority, right, the, the same norms are there. Head up and down is yes, the side to side is no, right? Things like that, like the norm. But it, it's also really obvious to tell 
Like we think people and, and poker tells and all that are so hard to see and distinguish, but they're really not. They're really, you, you see them all the time. If you get upset at your kid because they're not paying attention to you, you know what that gesture is. If you watch the presidential debates and you're like, man, he looked like a bully in this part, or he looked weak in this part, or she seemed rude in that part, Uh or he seemed abrasive. They're all things that we pick up on and notice and we do it subconsciously. So the same applies anytime you're having a normal conversation with anyone, those movements get picked up. The only difference between interrogators and everyone else is a interrogators get a lot more training and experience and exposure to it. So they see a lot more of the negative aspects of conversation, Uh right? And so it becomes easier to pick up on those lie detector tells quote unquote, but truthfully, anyone who's involved in a conversation can tell you if person A is engaged or not engaged, right? And I think that's what we all forget. And we think that by just, yep, yep, mm-hmm, like that, that comes across as he's actually really listening. No, he's not. Like Maybe he may just that. be trying yeah. to speed up the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And, and people can pick that up. And so I always tell people when you're looking at body language, don't just key in on the big things, the foot tapping, this or that. Like, don't pick on the one individual thing. Look at the collective from head to toe. If you just go, if their toes tapping, they're nervous and anxious. Well, wait a minute. Does everything else align with that? Like, is their foot tapping, but their body is in and their arms are open? Maybe they're just excited to be a part of the conversation. Maybe they have something they really want to say and they don't want to lose it. And that's Maybe how they're, they're just brain. cold. Maybe they're cold, right? Like the, the options are out there, but lie detectors and like all this, this television magic of an interrogator has really trained us to, to look at communication in the wrong way. Yeah. In the sense that we just try to place it all into these big buckets. And like I said, conversation ebbs and flows, right? You can't just drop it into one singular bucket. And that's why it's more of an art. While everyone has the ability to do it, doing it effectively is an art. There's a little bit of science, yes, but you have to figure out how to create it for you, right? Because not every person is going to be the abrasive jam it down their throat conversation guy. Not every person is going to be like you and me having a lot like conversation flows on logic. Some people flow emotional based, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to tie an emotional tie in to every piece of the conversation. Like if you become a better listener and better communicator, you can strengthen your relationship with your son or your daughter, right? Right. Like some people have to have that emotional tie to really get invested in the conversation. And when you figure out, again, back to that planning, when you figure out how you as an individual tick, it then makes it to where you can portray your message and you can portray it in a way that transcends that one tick, right? So you can be emotional and talk to the logical person because you can still portray your emotions, but in a logical way. Or you can be a logical person and talk to an emotional person and say, hey, you know, this is, this is the logical sequential walkout for how this happens. And when you do these things, it allows you to build better relationships, be more based to the people that you're with, strengthen your, your work relationship or your home relationship or whatever it is, right? And when you do those things, that creates a very powerful opportunity for true connection and true communication. So something we talked about earlier too was rapport building is also, also building safety and security. How do you build safety and security with somebody that you don't really know? <laughs> yeah, so I love this question, right? Because it, it, it gives me the opportunity to dispel the greatest myth in interrogation, that every interrogation is a waterboarding torture exercise, right? So, and, and I said it to you when we first talked, and I, and I say, say it on pretty much every podcast I get to talk about interrogation. If you think about a a conversation from a safety and security standpoint and rapport building, if you just walk up to Joe or Sue inside of your office and you have a question for them about the latest P&L report, and before you ask that question, you punch them in the face, what do you think their response is going to be? Oh, they're going to tighten up and not want to say anything. So one of two things, right? They're going to tighten up, they're going to get afraid, or they're going to get aggressive. And they're going to attack you, right? Because you've attacked safety and security, which let's go back to fundamental psychology, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's the baseline to all humanity. We have to feel safe. We have to feel secure before we can do anything. So now when you think of conversation as information exchange and currency, right? You now see, okay, people take their money and their time very seriously. 
So they're going to want to feel safe and secure to provide that in a meaningful way, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't give them that feeling, what incentive do they have to talk to you? Not force. Yeah, like force. The only option is they're forced to talk to you because maybe they have to do an interview with you or whatever else. But at those points, they can still walk up and leave and all these different factors. Like there's nothing tying them to it. There's no anchor, right? Back to the core, there's no base. And so you have to have that. And like I said, that safety varies. So when you think about interrogation, there's strategic interrogation and there's tactical interrogation. So tactical would be coming off of a helo, jumping into a, to a village or onto an objective, busting in the doors, gathering all the people up and then asking questions, right? The way that their safety and security can be addressed is a lot different than a person who's been sitting in a detention facility for months or years on end, right? But both of them have to feel comfortable to talk to you. The one on the objective has to feel like they're not going to be hurt and their family's not going to be hurt or they're not going to go to jail or any number of whatever their biggest concern is. That's got to be really difficult, especially if it's something that's as drastic as what you just described. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and obviously I'm picking like very yeah, drastic yeah. scenario because it's kind of every other conversation is a little bit easier from that. Yeah. But yeah, at, at that point, you know, you, you're not necessarily able to eliminate all their fears, right? So perfect example, if you roll people up on an objective, they're probably going to get arrested, right? Yeah. They may have potentially seen someone else die inside of the building they were in, right? So, so you're not going to be able to eliminate everything. But what you're going to be able to do is say, hey, look, if you're working with me and talking to me and things like that, we're not here to hurt you. We were here for X, Y, or Z, right? Whatever thing. You're collateral. We're going we're gonna to try to take care of you. Just give me a breakdown of what you're doing here, why you're here. Explain to me why you should not be involved in this. And that gives me a place to go. So now they have an incentive, right? So they want to give you the best and truest information possible to get them out of a situation that they're in. and. Now, obviously, you get into the scenarios of lying and things like that, and there's all those other aspects. But staying with the safety and security piece, you're able to downgrade that fear, right? And again, remember how I said rapport and conversation can be positive or negative, right? So the other end of that is you can ramp it up and say, hey, man, if you're not working with me, you're going to, like, you could go get put in jail. And at that point, I no longer have say in your case. And X person is responsible for it. And I don't know what they're going to do, right? Like you can amp up that fear. The same thing inside of a business. You can say, Hey, you know, you can work with me on this, or I'm going to have to like report you to to Bob of HR and you, you know how Bob is, (laughs) but, and and that's kind of the piece of it, right? Like Mm -hmm. either one can exist, but you either have to give safety or take it away. And I am a big proponent for giving because like I said, Ramping down is hard. Ramping up is easier, right? Like always try to give from a positive, safe and secure perspective. And if for whatever reason you have to ramp up, right? You know, I'm talking at this point, I'm talking to like the CEOs and the team leaders and things like that. Hey, or even just the suppliers, right? Like, hey, I'm going to have to cancel your contract. I'm going to have to terminate your job. Things like like those ramp ups are available. But do you really think you're going to get the best out of Jen or Alan or Sue or whoever, if you start it by saying, Hey, I didn't get this report. And you know, when I don't get it, someone gets fired, right? Like no one's like, yes, let me tell you everything. Right. So you're right. Like we talked about this earlier too, is let's just talk about negotiation. Let's pivot a little bit. Cause that's kind of, how do you think through fear and reservation? Because sometimes to get what you want, you have to negotiate a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to give you tit for tat. How does that work? Like, how, how should we be approaching situations where we need to negotiate with somebody? Yeah. So for me, negotiation is not a lose-lose, right? Like, I, I hate that scenario where people are like, yeah, when, when you have a, you know, both people have to walk away from the table unhappy. Bull. Like, that's, that's not true. Right. And if you're thinking like that, that means, A, you didn't plan for the conversation. Mm. B, you don't know how to build rapport because you're not trying to get to a place where both people feel safe and secure and able to say, Hey, this is what I truly need. And you can say what you truly need. Right. So for me, negotiation is, and you know, Chris Voss and all these other people, everyone has a different kind of view, I guess, quote unquote. But for me, it's more of a negotiation is very truth based. You have to be honest about what you want. 
Now, yes, you can leave certain pieces out, right? Like you can not tell the truth to the full extent. Okay, fine. I'm not a proponent of that, but yeah, you can. In my mind though, you have to have that core foundational truth of what you want. You know, if you want 10% down on your car, right? Like, and no higher then everything in your conversation should be working to that 10%. So if it's best to state that like at the very beginning or find a way to say, Hey, listen, like uh, we're working a deal. I don't want to do more than 20%. Like, so for me, it's, I, I say truthful, base that initial rapport, kind of get a feel for the person you're talking to. And if you've built the proper rapport and you have a real honest relationship, you should both have a little bit of an idea of what you want. And yes, I think you can say, Hey, I want 10% because the other person should be able to say, okay, I want the security that you're going to sign for five years, right? Or, or whatever, right? But if you're not at a place where you can both do that, you're going to be constantly bickering back and forth about the scraps. When really and truly, you probably both want to be at a very similar place anyways, right? Which is usually in line. Like the, the whole thing is nothing is really new, right? The same with conversation or anything else. There's no real like new monumental, like these are the percentage, right? There's industry standards for everything, right? right? So once you kind of get a feel for what those standards are, again, back to planning, when you get a feel for what that is and you align those standards with what you can realistically accept, then you're going to walk into the conversation confident knowing what you want, confident knowing that you know how to get to that inside of the conversation by building a strong rapport and having a strong anchor to come back to uh-huh. by understanding that, hey, this person is logical, sequential. So I need to outline for them, hey, if I give you 10% year over year, this is what you're going to make overall, which is more than you would make if you know you signed X person or you did this or that or whatever, right? But if it's not coming from a safe and secure place of truth, then how are you really having a true negotiation anyways? You're both just trying to manipulate each other. And anytime you're trying to manipulate each other, it kind of becomes like a shootout, right? Who can hit the death shot first, right? Like, that's really what it is. I, I, I envision it. Those type of negotiations, I picture like the Wild West when they had like, you know, gunpowder everywhere. And you're blind. Yeah, like high noon, gunpowder blinding after the first shot. And they're just like, ah, ah, maybe I hit them, you know? Like, that's the kind of thing. Because you're not operating in a space of trying to understand the person and be understood. You're not trying to have a strong, safe, and secure conversation. You're simply just saying, I want this and I'm going to push it down their throat. And they're saying, no, I want this and I'm going to push it down their throat. So there's no mutual understanding or respect. And when you don't have respect, you can't have a conversation. That's deep, man. This is so impactful because I think sometimes we don't even mean to be manipulating somebody else. That can go back to your character, most definitely. But sometimes we just want what we want and we're not really thinking about the other person. And so what this is kind of causing me to reflect about is what is it that they need? What is it that they want? Are they safe? Are they secure? Have I, have I identified what that is? And then we can work from that place. And you'll find the conversations are stronger when you do that, right? Yeah. Because like I said, it, it, it's just that fundamental psychology, right? People want to feel safe. But what you'll also find is when you're doing that is that all of a sudden you start becoming more open. You start saying, hey, wait a minute. You know what? You're right. That's exactly the way I mapped out this conversation. So wait a minute. Am I doing this correctly? Is, is, did I do this for every person before I spoke to them? Is this the norm for me, right? Or did I treat this conversation differently than another conversation? And once you start doing those things, then you kind of create that not really canned conversation. You create the template of the conversation. And now planning isn't as hard for you because you fundamentally know who you are. You fundamentally know how you can help others achieve. And then you just start interjecting that in with the minor shift and nuance to this person's more emotional. So I need to go more this way. This person more logical. I need to go. What's crazy about this is you keep talking about the other person. And when we think about interrogators, we think about information. The only way you're going to get that information is if if you're actually thinking about the other person. Yep, exactly. Honestly, the the whole television thing, right? Like these lone warriors who are just like doing it. Like, okay, yeah, I'm sure in some small circles, those people do exist, right? But for the most part, 
no, it, it's, there's planning, there's prep that goes into it. There's understanding the emotion behind it. There's not just, you know, just throw a bag of money and the problem goes away. Yeah. That's, that's one way you can do it, but truthfully real actionable and long term intelligence, right? Because anybody can go up to somebody and get one piece of information. That's yeah. easy, right? Like anyone, I could send my three-year-old to a bar and tell him to ask a question and somebody's going to answer him. Right. Right. Like there's no plan to that whatsoever, but to go in time over time and build a conversation and get to a place where, you know, sticking with the bar analogy, the owner of the bar starts telling you what his biggest sales are, what he thinks about how he moves things. So the perfect uh, war analogy for this is there was a world war II interrogator on the German side and obviously the one time I would have to talk about it, I completely forgot about the name. So I did kind of add an addition to this conversation that I didn't <laughs> plan to. He's a great interrogator and I will shoot you that information afterwards. But he is essentially, he would sit down with down pilots. He would walk across the countryside to them and just talk to them time over time, have picnics with them, do all of these different things. And by the end of the war, he had gathered so much information on how British planes traveled, you know, why the different symbols were on them, different things of that nature. And every person that, sp- that spoke about being in captivity and being interrogated by him and things like that, none of them thought that they had given a significant piece of information. Twofold. One, they didn't all give significant pieces of information. They gave a little piece and he put the pieces together. Two, he spread it out over such a long period of time that they never even put it together that that's where it was going to. Mm. So that's really, and on a condensed scale, that's what you're doing in a conversation. You're trying to have a real meaningful connection where you and the person are talking and they don't feel like you're trying to sell them and you don't feel like you're trying to manipulate them. You're just having a genuine conversation. And what builds from what someone thinks is genuine, it becomes this beautiful thing that you never intended to, right? I guarantee you, you walked into this conversation, you had an idea of where it would go. And I, and I would venture to say, judging by your expression right now, that the way that this conversation has turned is even more so than what you expected. 100%. Which is what's supposed to happen. That's right. what a real organic conversation is supposed to be. And neither person is supposed to walk away feeling like, oh, that was just a taxing, painful experience. People should walk away and go, I want to talk to that guy for another hour, right? right? Or I want to talk to that girl for another day, you know, like all of that, unless your explicit goal is to, again, rob that safety and security. But in regular, normal circumstances outside of war and policing and things like that, I can see very little instance where you would want to do that to somebody. No, I totally get it. So, you now work in the world of banking and finance as a process engineer. How have you been able to apply these skill sets to your current industry that you're working in? Oh man, it's in everything, right? Again, back to just that fundamental conversation. You want to get anything done, you want to achieve anything, right? It, it takes a conversation and process engineering, right? And quality management, all of those things are mapping out processes, talking to people about what they do and trying to optimize it, right? So when you're doing that, you better be able to gather good information from a person and you better be able to gather it in such a way that they don't feel annoyed or frustrated or like they don't want to talk to you. And you also want to do it in such a way that you can come back to them and ask for follow-up information and them not feel like you're a tax. So you have to build a strong rapport with them because you may need to come back to them. So let me ask you this. Have you been ever, ever been able to apply these principles in non-human to human interactions? So computer digital interactions? Not necessarily. I've never really done it from that aspect. I'm that sure that would be could, interesting to me never done it. because a lot of us are creating relationships through social media. So I'm just trying to think, how could I build rapport with an audience that I'm not actually talking to provide them safety and security so that they want to keep coming back to learn more? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought. And I've had ideas, right? You're Again, you're not the first person to pose that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're the first person who actually has been doing the deep thought on it already. 
because people who like in other podcasts, people have said in passing like, Oh, well, what would this look like as a social media strategy? Well, again, it kind of, it depends on the person, right? So I would think that a good way would be you individually, you know, speaking in a solo video format, telling more of your story. So when I think of people doing this, a person that comes to mind is Rich Cardona, um, Rob Renz on LinkedIn. They have very just real authentic conversations through video and short like minute spurts, uh, two minute spurts, three minutes, the occasional five minute, right? They hook you in with those little pieces and build rapport with that consistent daily posting of small videos that give you a little bit of advice or a little tip that then would make you willing to consume the long form. So I think from a social media standpoint, it would be more of a, and again, kind of consistency because rapport on social media would be long-term consistency. A person can open their feed and see you, but they would have to see you bringing them value. So inside of a day, let's just go off the two main people archetypes. That would be the emotional and the logical thinker. So for every post you create, you would have to create a logical version and an emotional version. So perfect example, one of your recent posts was about resting sleep, the one that I commented on about taking naps, right? So from a logic perspective, right, you could say, hey, that increases productivity by X percent, blah, 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 blah. From an emotional perspective, you could say, hey, you know, there's been science relating to if, you know, you take more naps, you're able to have um, deeper conversation, whatever the science is that backs that. But you could, but then you could say like, hey, in my own personal experience, this has come to light because, you know, on X day when I didn't take a nap, I snapped at my wife when she tried to buy me a sequin jacket on Amazon. And then when I did take a nap, I was able to be like, honey, that's so funny. And just, you know, and then I was able to share it with my group. So yeah, this really does. And it really can improve your relationship. Well, help naps, you know, sleep helps with emotional intelligence. So you could talk about like mood appropriate behaviors. Yeah. That makes total sense. And I've never thought about it this way. I do think about value about what is, if somebody watches, like looks at a carousel or watches a video, are they going to walk away with something that's valuable? If not, they're done. Like you just wasted 60 seconds of my life, but I haven't really thought about it in this manner. And I like that a lot. And I think, and I think that's the big thing too, right? Like social media right now, everyone does think value and consistency. And I will never detract from those two things. Like I've done the exercises to show that, yeah, the consistency does play a role, but we think that with how much content is out there and how much a person has to make, right? You have to post at least once a day to be relevant three times a day to potentially go viral. Things like, like those are kind of the feeds, right? Statistically three, three or more times a day gives you a better chance to go viral, blah, blah, blah. Right. Inserting all of that point being, if you're really doing that, are you viewing it through the lens of how you would take value from it? Or are you viewing it from the lens of how your listener would, right? Yeah. Because, Again, I'm a logical, sequential person. So an emotional post doesn't really resonate with me. So most of my posts aren't really emotion-based, which is something I need to get better at and I've been working to get better at. So if you as an individual are not showing that side, you're almost unintentionally alienating a group of your base because while there is daily content and there's something they can see and there's going to be flash value and things like that, you're not giving them that security to feel like you're a person who takes emotion and embraces it the way that they do, right? So you haven't built that rapport, that anchor connection to them. And now with that base, you're going to have to keep it going, right? You can't just, you know, here's my one emotion post for the day and I've hit that, I've hit that block. I can check it off, right? You're you gonna just have gave to me genuinely- a great idea. <laughs> I, I got something brewing in my head. I'll throw it at you later. It'll be my secret advantage. <laughs> no, this is this is so interesting. Let me ask you this. Do your colleagues currently under know your background? Yes. So I tell people from the very beginning and and I've had two approach I've had I really two, want you to feel safe, but I just want you to know no, so I've, that I, so, I was an interrogator. <laughs> so funny point to that is for two reasons. One, I used to not tell people about it. And then they would find out about it through conversation, interaction with friends of mine or whatever, right? And then it creates this awkward moment where I then have to fill in all that gap and I have to address that conversation. And then they're looking for like the bag in your drawer yep, that you yep, throw yep. over their head. So, yep, exactly. So a little <laughs> bit, I try to preface that yeah. by saying, hey, 
Like this is what I did. I was an interrogator, but really and truly interrogations are just communication, right? Like really breaking down those fundamental pieces. But I've also found that it's kind of just back to that honesty, safety, and security, right? If I'm willing to just say, hey, front load everything. Hey, like I used to be an interrogator. I grew up in abusive foster care. You know, I, I battled with my transition. It was a rocky start. And at one point in my life, I committed adultery on my wife, right? Like when I tell that, I've now taken all the wins out of anybody's sales. Like nobody can be like, shit, Roman doesn't tell us everything. No, Roman, Roman's completely transparent. Like to the point where I probably would not have told somebody that, right? And when people think about it that way, and this is not a selfish, like this is not me gaming people, but it makes people feel more secure and more safe to have conversation around me because I've opened up about vulnerabilities. I've opened up about my past and nothing is kept away from them. So when you do that, now they can say, okay, Hey, I, you know, Roman, I want to tell you this, or I want to tell you that or so on and so forth. And so I encourage everyone just when you're having a conversation, be real and authentic and open. It's the whole premise of my podcast, real talk with Roman. Like you, you have to be open. Now, I'm not saying the day, the first second you meet somebody, be like, okay, so I actually like love to bite my fingernails. You know, like yeah, yeah. maybe that's not like how you do it, but at the same time, hey, you know, I know that people fundamentally think that interrogators are these crazy, scary people. I know that I don't want people to think of me that way. So I have to get ahead of the narrative, right? Now we're back to planning conversations. I know how people are going to react. So I have to address this. I know that if I tell people this, I might lose some people, but I also know that if I don't tell that other people are going to be lost along the way. So which one do I want to do? Do I want to pay now or do I want to pay later? And that's really, again, back to information being a currency. When do you want to pay and how do you want to pay? For me, I'd rather put it all on the table up front, know where I stand with that person and see how the conversation is going to go out from there. And plus, if you do it on a small basis, so I always tell people, have short conversation with people, 10 minutes or less, right? So the the great example was, you know, you go up to a bar, you order a drink, talk to one person beside you while you're waiting for your drink to come. If you're at a restaurant, talk to a person in the line with you while you're waiting to go through. If you're in the airport as you're taxiing on or off the runway, have a conversation, see where it goes with that person. You do it in that small spurt and it lets you know whether this is a person you want to interact with and talk to. So, and it also builds those conversational skills. So for people, but if you, and I've tried it both ways, I've kept things from people in a conversation and not told full truths, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and I've been completely open. And I can tell you, I I can't tell you the exact statistic, but I can tell you predominantly when I'm fully open, the other person engages with me more and I end up having a longer, more deep conversation with them. So another great way this applies for parents So I know myself, when you have kids, finding, you know, the other parent that you want to hang out with is hard, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, we we all know it, right? You're like, oh, that person's weird. Or the kid is super, the two kids. I have feelings of guilt around that, by the way. Like, (laughs) I I find myself like, like, man, is it bad? I just don't want to be around that person. But, you know, it's, it's, my wife told me the other day, we're moving. And she was somewhere with some ladies at a, oh, a birthday party. And she met this gal and she comes home. She's like, man, we would have made big, great friends. And I told her we're leaving and she was totally bummed because where we live right now, it's like nearly impossible to find somebody that you want to hang out with. Sorry. Just you really hit a, that's a, that's a truth right there. No, you're, you're exactly right. And for a lot of parents, you think, well, I just have to accept the interaction with a, with a bad person because it's good for my kid. Well, yes, while that's true to a certain degree, right? Like you can operate that way and be perfectly fine. You can try to make the person feel safe and secure to want to have the conversation. So sometimes what we say is, oh, this person is weird and I can't have a conversation with them or I can't interact with them or they're not a good fit for me. Are they not a good fit because they're not a good person or are they not a good fit because you're trying to fit them to your way of having a conversation or your way of thinking, right? So when you branch out of that and you say, how do I have a conversation that's meaningful to this person where they would want to interact, right? It may be they like sports and you don't, but you can use the conversation about sports to segue you into something. Maybe you're more into data analytics and all of a sudden he's got a fantasy football team that he just runs off of who his favorite players are. And you can say, well, statistically, right? Like, you know, 
Dak Prescott is great or not great, right? Or whatever, right? Whoever the player is, right? You can say, hey, like these are the statistics. And now all of a sudden you've bonded over statistics. Now you have a safe, secure place to kind of kick off from. And then from there, the conversation can go. But too often we say, okay, well, you know, hi, how are you? You don't do that. Okay. Oh, they had like a bad body posture or whatever. And we instantly say, well, they're not my fit. Well, I can't have a conversation with that person. Did you really try to have a conversation yeah. with that or person? Or is it just like, all about you? Yeah. And, and too often parents use the excuse of, well, the kids like playing to, with each other. So, you know, we let them play and we just kind of deal with it. Well, no, you can continue to try it. Now, there's always exceptions, right? Like there's always that one person who doesn't want to be a part of the conversation is always going to answer the question with, so, you know, what do you do for work? Uh, I work at SeaWorld or wherever. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. What do you do at SeaWorld? And they're like, stuff. And you're like, okay, yeah. okay what stuff? You know, yeah. like there's always that type of person. And, you know, but those are the small percentage. Majority of people aren't having conversations because they don't feel secure not because they don't want to have a conversation or not because there's some weird outlandish person that you can't connect with. The truth of the matter is, is you haven't made the effort to connect with them on a level that they can integrate and feel safe to integrate with you. Because just how you're uncomfortable meeting new people, they are too. And their uncomfortable comes off in a different way, right? And then at the end of the day, you both have kids, right? So you can find a commonality in those kids that then allows you a kicking off point to then grow into a deeper conversation. Last question I got for you today, and you mentioned it briefly at the very beginning, and you actually just brought it up now. Um, you're a foster child, and you're very passionate about that. What are you doing now to help foster children? Because I believe you're involved in some nonprofit work and just giving of your own time. Yeah. So I do, um, I have a consulting company, Blue Sphinx Consulting. And I basically, um, I basically try to teach these kind of things to people, right? Communication, how to be better at it, how to communicate better as a business, right? Because there's a whole nother aspect we didn't go down, which is how you write things, right? Mm. The way that you write something is speaking. It's a language, it's a conversation. And so the way you write your policies and procedures as a business, turn employees on or off to what you're doing. And for nonprofits, specifically in the foster care industry, it's an overworked, underpaid industry. And, you know, access to resources like Six Sigma Black Belts, Agile Coaches, things like that, different business hierarchy skills, I guess you could say, those aren't readily available. So I try to set with those businesses and teach them, you know, how to have a conversation effectively but also how having that effective conversation can help them with problem solving, can help drive continuous improvement, can help improve donor relations, can help improve how you build a sales model, right? Because again, everything is built off conversation. Communication is in everything we do. And so when you really start to understand that, then all of a sudden, the way that your CEO talks to your ops manager impacts the way that your caseworkers perform. And so I try to have those conversations at the business level, foster care nonprofits, really any nonprofit. I've worked with military nonprofits, and then I've worked with some for-profit businesses as well, because again, the concepts are universal. I also do a lot of speaking at foster care mm -hmm. uh, places that I grew up at because I had a rough foster care experience, but also in going through that, uh, one of my biggest problems was I was not communicating with people. The, the communicator you see now was smoke and mirrors when I was a kid. I would tell people what they wanted to hear. I knew all the answers to pass the test, and I would just say those things. And so people would get off of me, leave me alone, but no, nothing was being solved. So, And I, that's actually a really common tale inside of foster care. Children figure out, again, back to safety and security, children figure out how to be safe. And if you put a child in an environment where it's not ideal, they will figure out what they need to do to be safe. And then that becomes the baseline for their behavior as they continue to age. Because again, remember that let's just stick with males because I'm a male. The average male brain develops until the age of 25, meaning that everything that I went through as a child, the way that I built conversations, the way that I interacted with people in prepubescent years built the baseline for when I went into puberty, built the baseline for how I joined the military. It wasn't until I learned kind of the nuances of conversation from a scientific standpoint and from the actual implication in war zones 
that I actually began to understand, okay, hey, there's a little bit more to it than just lying and manipulating people. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get to the, like everything I said, while that's the emotional, the truthful approach, you can do the manipulating, lying, scheming approach and you will still see success. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. But at the end of the day, the tax that it will take on you mentally and emotionally and the point where people realize that you manipulated them and how it will hurt you in the long term is very costly, right? So it's why I'm not an advocate for it. It's why I'm an advocate for true deep conversation. And that's kind of the thing that I try to talk to with foster kids and get them to understand like, hey, you have to love yourself and love others, but you have to have conversations that allow them to love you and show you love and be a part. Like you, you have to open up because if you're just constantly walled off, like I said, you can lie your way through or get through, or you can build fake rapport or whatever. But at the end of the day, the only person it hurts is you and it doesn't get you where you need to be or where you want to be. And so if people are, let me ask you a question. If people are interested in helping your organization, where can they go? Yeah. So, I mean, I just do freelance consulting, but there are a lot of great organizations. So there are places like National Angels. I actually just spoke to their CEO. She's going to be on an episode of Real Talk and she hosts, she runs a foster care nonprofit that is nationwide. So her goal is to get into every metropolitan city before before she leaves this earth which is a very lofty goal. That's like 358 as of right now, right? And we know that cities are constantly growing. And so uh, I want to say she's in like 30 or 60 or something like that. I forget the number off the top of my head. But her organization is a great organization to reach out to for that. From the veteran organization, there's a group that I work with called Project Refit. They do a lot inside of the mental health space for veterans, having conversations, right? Having real authentic conversations and as they say, removing the stigma. Again, they're a little more brash and abrasive and they kind of speak a little more of that language that, you know, first responders, infantry, things like that. So it may not appeal to everybody, but that's one group. There's another veteran group called Veteran that is working to provide resources to veterans. I actually spoke to their CEO on my podcast. And then really and truly the foster care home that I grew up in is Foster Home for Children in Stephenville, Texas. And you can find them online on Facebook. They're a great organization trying to do everything they can to help foster children. The statistics for foster children are alarming. I mean, just, you know, most are not expected to graduate high school. Once you graduate high school, it's like a 1% chance of getting a degree. And once you get into like master's and higher, so I have a master's degree, Mm. getting into that level is like half a percent or less kind of thing, right? When you really break down the numbers. And then there's the drugs, the suicide, things like that, that all exist. So, you know, the foster care group is there. There are a lot of people really trying to, to speak to children who have had traumas in very formative years. Even if you just take out the whole abusive homes piece and put it to just the perspective of moving. Right. So the average foster kid will move eight times in two years from a listing of the most traumatic experiences people can experience. That's in the top five. I want to say it's actually in the top three, right? Because you're upending your life, moving somewhere else, pack, like all the, there's all these different logistical aspects and anxiety and things like that. So now think of doing that in, you know, your adolescent years while you're still developmentally growing. Yeah. And you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. It becomes very impactful. Wow. So, you know, those organizations that are trying to show love like Austin Angels, National Angels, they're really big. They're, they're just trying to show love and stability and get people into homes that, that helps them. Um, another organization from a military sexual trauma standpoint is Healing Heroes. She experienced sexual trauma and she is actually trying to open up the conversation, right? And what I love about her is she's having the conversation, right? And it's a very hard conversation. And her and I have talked about how to have it because it's a very different conversation, right? And that's another aspect too. Certain topics when you're having conversations are very emotionally charged. Like no matter how you want to have them logically, there's just a deep emotion to them. And that makes for a different conversation. And that's a whole nother skill set of how you do that and how you constantly have to keep going back to rapport because you're doing something that's so emotionally taxing on somebody, no matter how you put it. So just for perspective, if I gave you an hour-long conversation on sexual trauma, outlining what it was, what happened, who it's occurred to, statistics, things like that, at a certain point, 
the just negativity of it, while it's something that needs to be talked about, that that aspect of it is going to, it's going to hurt you. It's going to make it hard for you to continue the conversation mm-hmm. unless you're just like emotionally disconnected, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're logical or emotional at a certain point, whether it's the data gets to you or just the heartbreaking story gets to you at mm-hmm. a certain point, it just becomes too much. Mm-hmm. And when you're speaking on large scales, you have to kind of realize like if you're talking to a crowd, you have to kind of pick out sections of the crowd and kind of size people up. And this is where initial views of people take a moment to look at them and see who is someone who might look like they would respond extremely logical, who is someone who looks like they might respond extremely emotional. You may not always get it right, but they give you places to look for kind of those baselines to say, hey, okay, my, my logical people are starting to, to be affected. I need to, I need to pull back some, I need to shift the conversation. I need to pivot. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's kind of how, you know, I I get to kind of help organizations like that, especially when they're trying to talk on large scales and do trainings like that. Cause I think we can all remember any training we've been in, in a business and, you know, you just kind of zone out. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is not zone people out. And the only way to do that is by realizing who you're having the conversation with. And so I just, I help those organizations however I can as a consultant. Yeah. Uh, They they all do great projects. They offer shirts up, all kinds of different swag. They have donation buttons, things of that nature. They're just great organizations. And for me, I just found it so funny that, you know, the organizations who could benefit the most from people who understood communication and root cause corrective action and Mm -hmm. problem solving and sales pitches they were the ones who couldn't afford to to send a person for $10,000 to a course. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so, you know, I had these skills and all these things and, you know, I'm blessed with you know, a great job and I'm blessed to have been able to work through some of these things. So I, I was able to kind of be more flexible in consulting and, and help people in an avenue that I think a lot of people kind of, like I said earlier, don't even realize is something that we need help with. But everyone can improve in conversation. And even me, like I have no to question. constantly keep working on the skill. Yeah. So Roman, where, where can people find you? Where are you on social media, LinkedIn, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So all my social media now is kind of geared towards real talk with Roman. Okay. So Instagram, real talk with Roman, Facebook, real talk with Roman, Twitter, real talk with Rome, because they don't give me the full characters to write out Roman. You'll know my communication is on point when I convince them to give me the other two characters. <laughs> Awesome. But also you can find me on LinkedIn. That's really where, you know, if you want to talk about that kind of stuff, I'm actually going to start building a lot more content towards communication inside of there and kind of trying to help people more with that because it is something that I've just said, Hey, you know, here's my consulting services. Let's reach out and talk. But you know, I've just, I've seen, especially now that we've gone to more digital communication has become so much more critical and, you know, I just want to try to, to help people as much as possible with it. Well, Roman, I appreciate you coming on today. I think people are really going to walk away with a lot. And I think they're going to need to listen to this probably a few times to pull all the details out. But I'm encouraging people to reach out to you, to follow you, to connect with you if they have deeper questions, because I think this is such a critical skill set that we all need to develop. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today. And I'm just so glad that we that we met on social media. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I will, for anyone listening, if you want to have those conversations, DM me and I will answer any questions that I can, whether it's through email or we hop on a video call or whatever. Conversation is is good when you have it. So I want to have it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.